All right. That was kind of a weird song. Have y'all ever heard that song before? Some of you have. We haven't done it in a while in RUF, but it's actually a really important song that we like to sing fairly often. Um, one of the things that I think is important to understand is that the songs you sing express the DNA of your church or your ministry group. And that song is an important one if you would understand that we really want RUF to be a place where the broken and the weak and the weary feel like they can come and not have to perform. Um, I was thinking about, we just you know, had winter conference and we had a, a student years ago who, um, when she gave her senior testimony, this is something that some of y'all may not know we do this, but at the end of the year, we'll have our end of the year party and seniors will give testimony to how God has worked during their time in college and maybe how RUF has been helpful and give some advice to underclassmen. And this girl talked about the first time she ever came to any RUF event was winter conference. Um, now this was back when we did it at a place called Fall Creek Falls, but she had, was friends with a lot of our RUF students, but she herself had never visited. But she was not just an SLA, but she was an SLC. Do they still have those, like the people over the SLAs? Um, she was kind of like rock star Christian leader uh, at, at Belmont. And as a matter of fact, her dad had been a youth pastor, um, but she was secretly living a life of really self-destructive, self-harm kind of stuff. Um, deep in shame and really not able to tell anybody. And she came to RUF in that conference, and you know, we, we had more than we just had. We probably had about five or 600 students. The first night, we sang this song. And when she gave her senior testimony, she said it was the first time she'd ever been in a Christian group where she felt like, I think I could trust these people enough to be honest with what's really going on. Because if they're singing, if I'm, she's looking around seeing 500 people sing this song, they must believe that Christianity isn't just about a performance and about just sort of cleaning the outside of the cup, as Jesus put it. And that had never been her experience. And yet she was in these positions of ministry leadership to where she felt like she couldn't be honest. I hope that you know that this is a place where you can talk about what's really going on. Right? So we sing songs like that because we want you to understand that the Christian life is it's a journey, but it's not like God is a is a divine vending machine where you put your money in and then you get to pick, you know, what treat you want to get back. The Christian life is not a tit for tat kind of relationship. As long as you pray and as long as you keep your nose clean, then you get blessings. Doesn't work that way. God loves us too much to let us use him as a means to an end. And as we're going to see here, this passage, Romans 7, I think is one of the most helpful passages for us getting a picture of the Christian life that maybe is very different than what you think it should be. And I love that God put this in the Bible. And I love that the Apostle Paul who in another one of his letters talks about having visions where he felt like he was lifted up to the third heaven and shown things. I mean, he had amazing spiritual experiences. And yet he says in the present tense, I don't do what I want to do. And what I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. I, I think for so many of us, we don't understand how 
those two things can be compatible. Or to put it another way, how Romans chapter 7 is not something you get through to get to Romans chapter 8, but Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8 are parallel tracks. They're both going on at the same time. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says at the beginning of chapter 8, which we'll get into after spring break. But also, what I don't want to do, that's what I do. And what I do is not what I want to do. Oh, who will deliver me from this body of death? Those two things are happening at the same time. If you feel like you're a walking contradiction, well, maybe this passage will help you understand that perhaps you aren't crazy. Perhaps you actually have been set free to struggle and to battle. So I'm going to read Romans chapter 7. I'm going to actually start at verse 7 because we did the first few verses of Romans 7 last week. If you weren't here and you want to catch up on that, RUF at Belmont podcast. It's on iTunes. Um, You can hear all the messages. I post them there. All right, Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. He means lies dormant. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Though if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law, or a principle here is how he means law, that when I want to do right... Evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Let me pray. Lord, it's not the easiest passage, but Lord, it's because it's a complicated subject. Even to try to talk about it, we feel like we're half crazy trying to describe the tension, the warfare, the living contradiction that we feel we are. Thank you, Lord, that you have included this portion in your holy word to help us. Send your spirit now to help us understand and even to worship you tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I said, we sing songs like I asked the Lord that I might grow because we don't want you to feel like you're crazy. A friend of mine who used to do RUF at, down at Texas, at the University of Texas at Austin, used to say, every student I ever meet with is trying to get back to a mountaintop experience they had in middle school camp. And thinking that that mountaintop is what mature Christianity feels like. I would submit that that's not true. As a matter of fact, John Newton, who wrote that hymn, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow, he also wrote hymns like Amazing Grace. So I think people feel like he really does have a handle on the gospel and on grace, right? It's only the most popular hymn uh, in the world. But, but he, he does a lot of letter writing as well, and I commend the letters of John Newton to you. They're very helpful. And as a matter of fact, I included the excerpt from one that I'm going to mention a little later just to give you a little taste. Um, but, but he talks about how when somebody is kind of an immature or new Christian, God often condescends to giving them stronger feelings because they yet don't understand very much of the word of God. And they don't really have anything else. But a maturing Christian will regularly, and he would say, by God's design, go through a period where it feels like God has removed his tangible presence to draw you to a deeper level of trust beyond just your feelings. I don't think very many Christians understand that. Uh, even though we regularly sing that song, Cornerstone, right? Uh, which is based on an old hymn on Christ the Solid Rock. And we, we sing that line, you've probably sung it yourself, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean, where? On Jesus' name. What is a sweet frame? It's like a frame of mind. It's like, an, it's like a mental state. In other words, when I really feel like God loves me and I really feel it, I don't trust in that. <laughs> it's ironic, you know, that we often are trusting in that when we sing that song more than what we should be trusting in, which is what Christ has done. Our feelings go up and down, and sometimes, like in that hymn, I ask the Lord that I might grow, sometimes God even takes away feelings of closeness with him to draw us to a deeper level of trust. Now, I submit to you that that is not maybe a widespread understood idea in our day and age, but it is absolutely crucial to understand if you would persevere in the Christian life. And Romans 7 is kind of getting at that. Paul is saying, basically, like, I want to obey the law, but I find that there's this battle within me. And what does it lead him to at the very end? Thanks be to God. 
Not, look at me, how well I've lived the Christian life. He's an apostle for crying out loud. But you know, there's this fascinating thing. Maybe somebody's pointed this out to you. Near the very beginning of his life, he calls himself the least of the apostles. By the end of his life, and one of the last things that he ever wrote, what does he call himself? The chief of sinners. In other words, the true way of Christian growth is to grow less in your own eyes and to see Jesus and his grace as bigger than you ever thought it was. And one of the ways that God helps you get there is sometimes let you feel the sinfulness of sin. Flannery O'Connor was a Catholic Christian writer, lived down in Louisiana, um, and I don't know if you've ever read any of her short stories or any of her novels. I commend them to you, but I also have to warn you that they're a little weird. They're really weird, actually, because she was convinced that the South was not Christian, but it was haunted by Christ. And one of her things, she says, is that people in the South avoid Jesus by avoiding their sin. In other words, they pretend that they're good Christian people. They don't really need grace because they're really not that bad. And so in her short stories and her novels, she uses all kinds of grotesque imagery to sort of like shock you into realizing that we are worse than we think we are. That's part of what the law's purpose is. That's where we're going to start. What is the purpose of the law? Then we're going to look at how does the law work and help give us a true sense of what sin really is. Then we're going to look briefly at what the law can't do and then how Romans 7 helps us make sense of the craziness that we feel, right? So here we go. What's the purpose of the law? Well, in verse 7, Paul says this, is the law sin? By no means. He says that's ridiculous. Don't even, don't even consider that idea. Why, he says, because if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. Now, you got to know who's saying this. Paul, the apostle Paul, before he was Paul, he was Saul. Saul trained by the greatest rabbi of his day. So for Paul to say, I didn't know what sin was, you go, wait a sec, like you went to seminary with like Tim Keller of your day, like the top guy, and you're saying you, don't, you didn't know what sin was? But that's what he's saying. Not that I didn't, quote unquote, know what it was and couldn't spit the answer out on a theology exam. No, he could do that. He knew the Ten Commandments by heart, just like the rich young ruler. All of these commandments I know by heart, and I've done them since, you know, since I was young. He, he got all that, but he didn't really have an experiential sense that he was a sinner in need of grace. The law is not evil, he says, but he says sin works through the law. Sin is opportunistic. God has given the law. The law is good. But it's confusing, right? It's confusing because in chapter 6, he talked about how we're no longer under law. And thus he understands some may say, well, then the law doesn't have any role or the law is bad. It was bad when we were under law, so the law must be bad. I said, no, that's not the thing. To be under law means to try to use the law to earn God's smile or to earn his blessings or his favor. That's what it means to be under law. It means to be using it 
to try to, to, to get on God's good side, to sort of have an inside track to God and his favor. The reason that being under law is bad, he says, is that if you're going to go down that route of using the law to prove to God how good you are, well, then you are going to have to do a perfect job of it. And that will end up enslaving you because you can never measure up. So what Paul then goes into is saying, let me tell you how the law helped me. This Pharisee who thought I was great and doing well. So he gives his testimony about how the law led him to the gospel by showing him his sin. The law is good, he wants you to understand. Why, why is the law good? I'll, I'll give you two, two points that I think are helpful. One reason the law is good, I think I mentioned this last week, but it's, it bears repeating. The law is good because it gives us objective truth about what a relationship with God requires from us. In other words, Paul says, um, God has been gracious to tell us how he wants us to live. One of the things that, that you see when you look in the Old Testament is the tremendous contrast between Israel, who knew how God wanted them to live, though they didn't always uh, even very often live up to it, but they knew. And thus they knew that they needed to be forgiven when they didn't measure up. But all those pagan tribes are like groping around in the dark, wondering what do we have to do to make sure the gods won't come wipe us out? And they're doing all kinds of crazy things. Like you remember, you know, on, on Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal and God's prophet Elijah, and they're going to have this contest to see who can get their gods to rain down fire and burn up the sacrifices. And you remember what the prophets of Baal are doing? They're like dancing around like crazy people. They're cutting themselves, letting the blood flow, whipping themselves up into this frenzy. They don't know what they're doing. They're just hoping that they've guessed right. What are the gods actually like? One of the most gracious things about God is he doesn't leave us wondering. He says, this is what I want for you. I want you to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I want you to love your neighbor who's made in my image. He tells us the law is good because he tells us what he wants us to to live for what he made us for. The law is also good because God wants us to get beyond an abstract theoretical understanding of what sin was. And this, this is fascinating because Paul says he wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Now he knew the Ten Commandments, trust me. He knew the Ten Commandments. But he thought that he had done pretty good in keeping them, why? Well, because all of them you can obey at one level in an external way. But there's no external aspect to coveting. When he understood coveting as referring to a heart attitude, not only did it show him that he really was covetous more than he thought, but it showed him that all of the Ten Commandments actually have a heart aspect to them as well. Sin was lying dormant until he read the law and the law said, 
don't covet. He said, well, who are you to tell me what I can want and not want? Coveting is about what you want. Don't we live in a day and age where people think their desires are neutral and God has no right to speak into those? <laughs> I mean, that's a big one. God says, don't covet. I get to have lordship over what you desire. That's pretty big. Do you think that will stir up some people to say, I don't know if I really want a relationship with a God like that? <laughs> of course it will. It did that for Paul. He didn't know what coveting was until the law said, do not covet. And then he says, sin, seizing the opportunity, I kind of bowed up and said, well, who are you to tell me how I can live? And particularly, who are you to tell me what I can love, what I can desire, what I can long for? Who are you? And of course, God would say, well, I'm the one who made you. And as Augustine said so profoundly almost 2,000 years ago, God, you've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. God has always said, I've made you for me. What does it mean that God is jealous? It means he made us for himself. Of course he cares about what we desire and what we long for. He's not interested in just external obedience. So Paul says the law was good because it showed us what God wanted and it also showed me how far I was from it. I've always loved this quote by Martin Luther. Martin Luther said one time, a true theologian is known not just by reading theology books. No, a true theologian is made by living and dying and being damned. That's what Paul's experienced here in Romans 7. He said, I was alive, and then the law sprang to life, and it killed me. It brought me to utter despair. And then the gospel made me alive again. So how does the law give us this true sense of what sin is? And for that, I have to explain this word, goad. You know what a goad is? G-O-A-D. If it had five letters, that would be giving you a good word for Wordle one day. But a goad is like, a, it, well, it is. It's a little spike you attach to the end of a pole. And when your oxen aren't wanting to move, you jab them in the hindquarters. That's a goad. It's fun, isn't it? Do, do you, I can imagine that, that sometimes the oxen aren't real happy with the goad and being goaded into something. We use it kind of, you know, we reference it sometimes just like a little shove, a little kind of, you know, goad somebody into like push. No, it's actually worse than that, right? But this is what the law does. The law is like a goad. You think everything's fine. You're just sitting there, happy-go-lucky, and then something jabs, and you're like, hey, what are you, you know? Like, what are you doing? Where do you get off, right? That's what, that's what Paul, he thinks he's doing fine. And then the law says, don't covet. He's like, well, how dare you? And then he begins to think, then he begins to think, just like in the Garden of Eden, God is holding out on us the good stuff. And he begins to be suspicious of God. Maybe he actually doesn't have my good in, um, in his plan. I don't know if I like this guy. So there's, there's something, this shows you really how deep-rooted our independence and our desire to be God ourselves is rooted in our hearts. Because when God says, this is what I made you for, 
right? When God's law, something good, is spoken to us, it makes us hate God even more. That's what the law does. The law says, this is good. This is what you are made for. And we say, how dare you? And it makes us hate God even more. That's what it did to Paul. He says sin was dead. It it was lying dormant. For all practical purposes, I didn't really think of myself as a sinner. And then the law said, don't do this. And it made me bow up. And then I was like, oh, wow. Look at my heart attitude towards God. You see, the essence of God, the essence of sin, sorry, is to be God ourselves. But why was coveting the command that killed Paul? Like I said, it was because he was a Pharisee. Now, we think of the Pharisees as bad guys because you've been around Christian teaching, you've read the Bible. But in the, fair, in the first century, Pharisees were the good guys. They were the Billy Grahams. They were the people actually that weren't corrupted by associating and aligning themselves with the Roman occupying army. See, they had a Jewish king who was basically a puppet king for the Romans. And the Romans weren't allowing the Jews to worship the way they felt that they should be able to. Right? And not only that, but they had their own Jewish leadership conspiring with the Romans. And the Pharisees, which literally means set-apart ones, were the ones that said, we're not going to have anything to do with all that. We're going to go out here and we're going to live pure, holy lives in hopes that God may see us and send his Messiah to kick out the Romans. And of course, Jesus comes, the true Messiah, but with a very different agenda than what they expected. And they weren't happy about it. Paul was one of those Pharisees, right? Who really his whole life was about living for God, being fired up for God, zeal for his kingdom. But he was completely off base, right? Till coveting showed him that it wasn't enough to have this external, beautiful life. What was going on in the heart, right? So what can't the law do? What can't the law do? Well, the law cannot produce the goodness it demands because it can't change our hearts from hating God. The law, you see, verse 10, he says, the law was intended to bring life. It promised life, but it proved to be death to me. Because it has no power to overcome our hatred and suspicion of God. And it's tragic because, you know, the Ten Commandments were not given so that God could spoil our fun. I, you know, I'm one of those people, I don't believe you should post the Ten Commandments in your, law, in your lawn or in your courtrooms unless you include the context, the preface. And I've never seen any politician like post or argue to post the Ten Commandments with the preface. If you don't post the preface, you really miss the point. Do you know what the preface of the Ten Commandments is? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. Therefore, live this way. The Ten Commandments are God saying these are ten conditions through which community and freedom will flourish. Not, 
I brought you out of slavery. Here's 10 ways to put you back into bondage again. If you think the law is just about what we need to do, then you miss the point. The law has no power to change our heart. And when we just put it up there like a moral code, it actually provokes and goads our sinful nature even more. So the law is good, but we are worse than we think. And that's what he gets into in the whole second half. Now, from verse 14 through the end, I'm not going to go through all these verses, because in some ways, he's sort of just like almost in two minds. Uh, The way Tim Keller says, it's like there's two heart cries here and two laws at work in his heart. And and you see it, he kind of goes back and forth. It's almost like he can't really find the perfect words to express. Have you ever felt like that? Like, I just can't even explain what's really going on. But in verse 14, he shifts into the present tense. So he's been talking, verse 13, did that which is good bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me. He's talking about what the law did in the past that brought him to spiritual life, brought him to trust in Jesus. But in verse 14, he shifts into the present tense. And this now, you've come into one of the biggest debates that there is in the letter to the Romans. Is Paul, in verse 14 through 25, talking about his current experience while he's writing the letter, where he's at now as a Christian, or is he still talking about what he was like before he became a Christian? And the reason this matters is because if you think that there's no way Paul could say these sorts of things as a true Christian, then you probably feel like you're not a very good Christian. Let me say that again. If you feel like there's no way Paul could say, I am unspiritual, sold into sin, there's no way a Christian could ever say that, then you probably don't feel like a very good Christian. But if what Paul is saying here is a normative, normal experience of Christians, then maybe you're not crazy. So it really does matter. Why does he shift to the present tense? Why? Well, on the one side, there are those who argue that Paul is describing himself in a pre-converted state in verse 14. After all, he has been talking about what happened in the past. How the law of coveting, do not covet, made sin spring to life, right? And these people would say, in verse 14, he shifts to the present tense to kind of put you right inside what he's actually feeling. That he does it to add a sense of vividness to what's going on. And, and you can, you know, understand that. I could see that even as a literary device. You probably know, you know, pieces of literature that do that sort of thing. But there's no example in Greek literature of doing that. So the grammar doesn't support that because there's no other example. This would be the unique example of doing that. But these people would say, he can't be talking about a true Christian. No true Christian would say things like, I am unspiritual or sold as a slave to sin. No real Christian would say, what I hate is what I do. Come on. And there are huge groups in the Christian world that take that view, that Paul cannot be talking here about himself as a Christian. This was John Wesley's view. So all of you that come from Methodist background, Nazarene, um, all those back, that, that tradition tends to 
take Romans 7 as Paul pre-conversion. If you've grown up in Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox Church, that whole huge swath of the Christian church takes Romans 7 as being Paul in a pre-converted state. And they would argue that no true Christian would ever say, what I hate is what I do. I don't subscribe to that. The more common reform view, the view I hold, is that Paul is describing his current state, and it's a normal state for Christians. A couple reasons. One, I already mentioned, the grammar. There's no example of Greek grammar shifting into the present tense for vividness when it's talking about a past tense experience. Nothing in the New Testament that does that. But also, he does say things in this section that no non-Christian would ever say. As a matter of fact, in Romans 8-7, which we'll look at after spring break, he says that the, the mind of sinful man is at enmity with God. It does not obey God's law, nor can it do so. So what Paul says just a few verses after what we read is that no person who's not a Christian can love God's law for God's law. Oh, we can love it as a way of making us feel like we're better than other people, but as far as loving it because it leads us to collapse on God's grace, that's something that only comes by the power of sovereign grace. So no, no non-Christian would ever say, like in verse 16, the law is good. No, no non-Christian would say, verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, right? Because like I say, in chapter 8, he says that the mind of sinful man is at enmity, it's at warfare with God's law. So Paul says things in this section that can only be said, at least according to what he's written other places, by someone who truly has been converted. But it's difficult to express this inward contradiction in words. So he uses several different ways to try and explain it, but it boils down to this, a couple points. Sin is not his deepest desire. Ultimately, in the deepest part of him, he says he hates it. And that is a change. Before he hated God, now he hates sin. As I think I've mentioned before, Robert Murray McShane, great Scottish preacher, a a hero to me, lived back in the 1800s. He said one time, a true Christian is known by their warfare. In other words, you battle in ways you never did before. Because now you see the law is holy and good, but you also see how far you come from loving God and loving people made in his image. So sin is not his deepest desire, but he's also not saying sin is not my responsibility. Like at one level, it seems to be saying, well, sin, not me. But then he's like, yeah, but it is me. I'm still responsible for it. And I still hate it. So he's basically saying there's a, the deepest, deepest part of me is, is the, the longing for God. But I find so often that that doesn't win out. This is what Tim Keller says. The believer is marked by two laws at work in his heart and two cries from his heart. We see the two laws. Look at verse 23. I see in my members 
another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So there's something about the deepest part of me. I delight in the law of God, but there's this other law, this other principle at work that's warring against me. So there's two laws or principles warring within me. And he says the warfare feels so intense that it often feels like I'm a prisoner because I can't do what I want to do. And what I want to do, I don't do it. And then we see the two cries in verse 24. Wretched man that I am. He doesn't say sinful man that I am. Remember, he's justified. He's beautiful in God's sight, but he's miserable because he feels this warfare inside. The cry of the wretched man agonizing over remaining sin. And in verse 25, another cry. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Right. The cry of hope and confidence, which will lead into Romans 8, which we will spend many weeks on. Because Romans 8, if, if you think of the book of Romans as the Himalayas, Romans 8 is Mount Everest. It's great, and we need to spend some time in it. We will. Well, what are a couple applications as we think about like, why this matters? First, I've already said, but I'll say it again. You need to understand that this feeling like there are two laws at work is normal for believers. And if you don't understand that, you're going to go crazy. That's why I gave you this little handout from John Newton. So John Newton, let me just tell you this, because if, if you know that that's normal, it probably will provoke the question, and this is the question that John Newton is responding to in this letter that I gave you the little handout about. He had somebody write him and say, look, if God made us beautiful in God's sight through the work of Jesus, the instant we become converted, we are perfectly beautiful in God's sight, that his righteousness is credited to our account. We will never be more justified than the moment we are believe. We're fully justified, okay? So why then doesn't God take away the sin out of our heart? If he can take away the sin that he sees in us, why doesn't he take away the sin that's at work in us? And what Newton says is, well, start with two, things, two assumptions. God is good. God is powerful, therefore God must have a good reason. And then he spends the rest of the letter speculating, yes, speculating what might be the reason. And, and actually the letter is called Advantages from Remaining Sin. And you know what? It actually echoes that hymn that we sang, I asked the Lord that I might grow, a great deal. Because what he basically says is, one of the most difficult things to root out of our heart is our self-sufficiency. And, and sometimes we can even do spiritual duties or spiritual disciplines in a way to make ourselves more self-sufficient, not more dependent on God. And sometimes the only way that God can help us see the great sin that's hidden behind so many of our other sins is for him to remove his restraining influence and let us really feel what we're like without his grace so that we could actually realize, oh my gosh, I really, really need God. So that's what that hymn is talking about, right? I ask the Lord that I might grow in grace and love for him. And what does he do? He basically like sends all this difficult stuff. He, 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 he makes me wonder, you know, if I really am a Christian 
whether I really am a child of God. And I kind of cry out to him, Lord, what are you doing? I asked for more grace and more faith. And he said, this is how I always answer prayers for more faith, by stripping away all the things that you are looking to instead of me. And that's what he says. God lets us battle because ultimately what he's always wanted, because it's what is for our good, is for us to be in a relationship with him where we are dependent upon him, where we trust him. I don't know if you remember, but in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God tells Israel why he had them wander around in the desert for 40 years. And I don't know if you've ever looked in your Bible and seen a map of the wandering of Israel in the desert for the 40 years. It is not a straight line from here to there. Egypt to the promised land. No, it goes up here and down here and around. It even doubles back on itself, goes over places where they've already been. And remember, they were led by a pillar of fire and a cloud. Like God literally saying, follow me. I'm going to take you exactly where I want you to go. And it's all over the place. And in Deuteronomy 8, God says this. I did that, having you wander around for 40 years, making you hungry so that I could feed you with bread you had never known, the manna, so that... There's purpose clause after purpose clause after purpose clause in here. So that I fed you, made you hungry so that I could feed you, so that you could know that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, dependence upon me. It's what Adam and Eve were made for. It's what they rejected. This tree that you say we shouldn't eat from, God, it looks pretty good to us. Looks good to me. I'm not going to trust what you say. I'm going to trust what looks good to me. And it's the same issue still going on in their hearts. And it's the same issue that Jesus had to face when he was in the desert 40 years. And it's why he quoted every time from Deuteronomy, because he understood that dependence upon God was what we were made for. And this is why Jesus said, it is my meat and drink to do the will of my Father in heaven. And you know what, brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, you get credit for that heart attitude of Jesus. But you still don't have that heart attitude yourself, and it's why we're miserable. But God is committed to completing that good work so that you wouldn't just get credit for the heart attitude of Jesus, but it would become yours. And one of the ways that he does that is by letting you see how much you need him. And that's Romans 7 right? Fighting against sin sets up a chain reaction that drives us deeper into the heart of the gospel. I don't know if you've ever really tried to be holy or if you've tried just to not be super bad. If, if, if you don't ever really try to change, you'll never really understand the power of sin, and then you'll never really understand what it means to cry out to God for help because you can't fix it yourself. Pursuing holiness always ups, showing us how ugly we really are, and then how great Jesus' love really is. Let me pray.